Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Dr. Samoon Ahmed. He is professor of psychiatry at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, serves as a unit chief at the inpatient unit at Bellevue Hospital. He is also co-author of the book, Medical Marijuana, A Clinical Handbook. And we're going to talk to him today a little bit about the medical side of cannabis and understanding kind of where are we in terms of what do we know about the plant? What do we know about its capabilities? How is it being applied? We're also going to talk about what we don't know and a little bit about why that is what research is underway, what research we would like to see, and really kind of what the future is, understanding more of this from a medical point of view. You know, a lot of, obviously, cannabis has been used in lots of different ways for thousands of years. And, you know, in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, we've really brought it back into use. And and a lot of this starts with medical programs. And so really kind of understanding what do we know, what do we not know, and what the directory might be in, in helping us understand how cannabis can apply to health and wellness and, and really improving people's lives. So with that, 
Dr. Ahmed, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. So before we kind of dig into what you're doing right now with cannabis, let's understand a little bit about your background, how cannabis came into play. Give us a little of the backstory. Well, uh, I started my residency at NYU, you know, approximately 30 years ago. And I am, a, I would say, a baby from the 1980s in terms of the medical school. So going back to that, if you are familiar with that, we had absolutely no knowledge of endocannabinoid system. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. at that point, which was not discovered till the late 1980s, 1990s. So we grew up with this big, completely oblivious. The only thing we understood about marijuana was a substance uh, that was used recreationally. Mm-hmm. And most of throughout our curriculum, we had no knowledge. We were sort of told as uh, most of the times we just understood that schedule one substance, which really means high addiction and no medical clinical value. And when a medical person looks through that lens, you literally close your mind to learning anything about that because it, yeah. you don't find any utility for that particular product. So mm-hmm. as a result, you know, later on during psychiatry residency and you are seeing significant population with substance use and extensive cannabis use as well at the same time, your belief becomes more and more grounded in that regard where you are only looking through one lens. It's a very myopic lens yeah. through that. You see that as a gateway drug, you see that every problem arising and it becomes a selection bias in that period of time. And as I sort of progressed and became a physician at Bellevue and took on the role of a unit chief and an attending over there, I started to see, and then I had my private practice, I sort of saw two polar opposite populations. Here I'm seeing at Bellevue a population which is indigent, poor people from New York, high substance use, significant AIDS, HIV, other problems who are coming in with substance use 60-70% and cannabis is the most common and completely dysfunctional. So I am associating every problem in their life with cannabis and I'm sort of looking at through that lens. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, I started to sort of dig in. Here are these patients coming into my private practice and they're people like you and me. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're business people and you ask them, you know, about their use. Yeah, doc, I use, you know, I smoke one joint or a blunt on a weekend and I started to see that their use was more like you and I would have a glass of wine or so over mm-hmm. the period of time. And it's like, why are these people dysfunctional? And some of them are smoking, you know, three, four times a week over yeah. the, throughout the week. And I thought there's more to the picture than meets the eye. Yeah. And I started to sort of look for information at that time to sort of see what were the differences. And the first thing that struck me was that I couldn't find any relevant objective data in one place. The scientific information was significantly lacking in one particular place. There were a lot of research and data and studies and vignettes and all of it. But I said, how do I educate myself about this? So I started digging more and more into this uh, information. And I realized I had to teach myself literally from kindergarten on this subject. (laughs) And and as I started to do that, it just, you know, I was talking to my fellow physicians and it struck me, everybody was in the dark ages just as I was myself. And I thought, if I have to educate myself, why shouldn't I educate my fellow physicians at the mm-hmm. same time? Yeah. So I started to think about, you know what, maybe I need to bring this information into an objective sort of a data uh, where it is completely independent of any 
political bias or other belief systems, so to speak. It's, you know, and clinicians are craving to understand this because obviously for the last 30 years, we have been on a journey with medical marijuana, with recreational programs, and you know, you see read so much in, in information in the news media about it. And that led me to sort of this, uh, on this track to write a book. But I wanted a partner in, in this crime who mm-hmm. was <laughs> not only, you know, sort of just writing from a clinical point of view, but also because I'm a clinician primarily, but a little bit of research and policy driven. And I had a, one of the best partners, which is Kevin Hill, because he directs, you know, the head of addictions at Harvard, mm-hmm. uh, at Beth Israel Deacon, but he's also involved with World Health Organization, with NFL, and other people where he's involved in policy decision-making and seeing the impact on athletes and in other policy-making in terms of how it's impacting, you know, the legislature and other. So I thought this would be ideal because here is a man who has specialized in addiction, but yet is very sort of balanced. And I love his uh, usual comment. He says, Simone, the only way I can see myself as a really objective person is when both the pro-cannabis and anti-cannabis people blame me for everything. <laughs> I find when myself- Equally hated by both equally sides. Equally hated by both sides. I find myself that I must be doing something right. Yeah. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's the probably one of the best ways to look. And we thought, this is how we're going to write this book. Yeah. We want if we we want to be hated we want to be hated by both groups but we want analysis and data that is driven by science absolutely. So this was the journey that led us to this book and we thought that you know books come every few years their editions come out and the mm-hmm. pace at which cannabis research is going it is so fast that by the time the next book comes it will be impossible to keep up with it. So yeah. we came up with the idea of a website which is cannabistextbook.com and this okay. is like a living document. So what we do is literally on a weekly or fortnightly basis, when any research or data comes, we immediately put that information, whether it's pro, whether it's anti, it doesn't make a difference as long as it is some sort of a trial that we find it objective, evidence-based, we will put there, if there is any legislature change in any state, any anything, we immediately put legalizations, any, so people can keep up with this information until we come up with the next edition. So there is no time lag for people to be short. So that's been really my journey of how I came with the idea of this book. It was a complete, I mean, I was in the dark. I was naive. Uh, You know, I was absolutely oblivious to this information. And uh, if I can do it at my age, I would encourage anybody out there who still has reservations about it, that the best way to actually is to start on this journey now, because clinicians are craving, the patients are craving. And on the last point is, I want to make is there was a recent data out of Vermont, where they asked patients in terms of being provided adequate information about cannabis by their uh, oncologists. Mm -hmm. And one in five patients were able to say yes. Four out of five said, we don't get any information. So the point is not that they're not going to get information. They're going to look for all kinds of information on Google and every place else. And then you you know what they're going to get out of there. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people, what does the word doctor mean? It comes out of a Latin word, dossier. What does dossier mean? It means to teach. 
Our job mm-hmm. is not just to practice medicine. It is to teach our patients as well. You know, yeah. and, and we need to realize that train has left the station when it comes to cannabis. Either we get on the train and teach people or we'll be left behind uh, in that regard. And that is the message I want to, you know, pass on to my fellow clinicians and general public as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I guess who, who really is the audience? I mean, you've mentioned several different people here. You mentioned, you know, patients, doctors. I mean, I would, who, who do you hope? reads this book and what do you hope what impact do you hope to have on them well one you know the book initially as i said the idea was to write for fellow clinicians so it's called medical mariana clinical handbook mm-hmm. and there are a few chapters which relatively i would say a little dense you know in terms okay. of understanding the science behind it that people who would be willing to sort of look at the histor- historical perspective as i say you know the only way you move forward in understanding anything even in science is by understanding your history. And Mm -hmm. so we wrote this book from the perspective of teaching the general audience, general public, in terms of because general public is who impacts the legislature. And legislature is that affects the policymaking, whether it's research, whether it's money, or whether it's clinical care, whether it's any kind of, you know, resources that ultimately will help uh, patients or public in general. So how do you inform the general public? is by educating them in that regard. So we gave a good amount of information going back in time, not through just historical, but in this particular country, as to how the current cannabis policies were laid based on the premise of the opioid crisis of the 1920s and 30s or at that time, and how that has transformed and changed our opinion and how we view cannabis today in that. And then it sort of goes into a little bit science, and then it talks about uh, regulations, and then it goes into specific systems. And it really talks about some clinical trials and tries to tease out where preclinical and clinical data is and where we are lacking. And I'm hoping that the general public will take into account that they can learn and they can ask questions of their physicians. Because if they ask questions of their physicians, physicians will begin to understand that they need to answer these questions. That's how, you know, sometimes it's a reverse. So I'm hoping that the more questions are asked, the more people will be willing to learn. That's my hope. Yeah. You know, we mentioned something interesting in the beginning, and I'm, I'm curious how this impacts things, is, is that we really didn't know about the endocannabinoid system in, you know, up until, you know, late 80s, early 90s. So on one hand, it's like we've got a double problem. <laughs> like We're yes. trying to understand this this plant and how it impacts the system that we really don't understand very well and what right. it does. Yeah. Like, I, I guess from your point of view, like which or, or how, like, what do we know about each of these things or how does this dynamic kind of play out in terms of the research, you know, understanding cannabis and understanding the system? Right. So, you know, let me try to drum it down in a sort of a simple way that whoever is listening can sort of follow through on this. There may be a few things that are scientific in there. So endocannabinoid system, or in abbreviation ECS, is a biochemical communication regulatory system that is found in the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, as well as the immune system. And literally every organ in the body is affected by endocannabinoid system. It sort of works as a body's physiological hemostasis. You can think of it that way. And it is composed of different components. And I think everybody understands what receptors mean. But then there is something called endogenous ligands. Ligands are sort of molecules that bind to receptors or proteins. And there are endocannabinoids. By endocannabinoids, we mean cannabinoids that exist within the body. And then we have exogenous cannabinoids, which means cannabinoids that exist outside of the body. And they are of two kinds. 
One is what we synthesize, you know, like a pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. And there are phytocannabinoids. Phyto comes from the word plant. Mm-hmm. So they exist in this. So you have endocannabinoids, and then you have mostly what we use as phytocannabinoids, which is cannabis, basically. That's what we are discussing over there. Yep. So endocannabinoid system, which is such a wide-ranging system in the body, was we didn't even know existed until the 19. 19- 80s. And and there was no way to know, you know, that people people were using cannabis, but nobody really understood how it interacts with the body and what happens. So I think it will be interesting for people to just listen to a little bit of the history of how we came to it, because I think it's very important to know that. They are the first cannabinoid receptor. There are two types, cannabinoid receptor type 1, and there is type 2. And they were discovered in the nineteen late 1980s, 1990 at that time. And it was literally sort of a very interesting, it's an interesting story, because what happened was in the 1980s, there was a researcher by the name of Alan Howlett out of University of St. Louis, and you're doing research. And Pfizer at the time was sort of experimenting with a molecule, which is called CP55940 for pain. And they had sort of given up on that. And she said, may I borrow this from this? Because it seems very interesting that I like to see how it interacts in the body. So she started to sort of work with that. And to make things simple, what she found after she radio labeled it and looked at it at the brain, that it bound to specific receptors in the brain, which suggested that there has to be a cannabinoid receptor in the brain. That was basically the beginning. I'm not going to go into naming all of those Uh because I think just unnecessary. And people start to think, does it make sense for the nature to have a receptor in the brain that is for something that exists outside in the plant kingdom? What if you are not using cannabis? What is the receptor for in the brain? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and they thought, no, that means there has to be something within the body that interacts with these receptors as well mm-hmm. at, that, at, at that time. So they started looking for it at that time. And in 1990, actually, uh, in Tom Brenner was the name of the person and he cloned the first CB1 receptor in National Institute of Health. And they started looking for these, what we call as the endocannabinoids at that time, mm-hmm. uh, which is, has to be something in the body. And they came up with the first one in 1992. And there's a long name for it, which is the N-erectonal ethanolamide. I'll make it a simple, <laughs> I'll, make, I'll, I'll give you a simple name that most people know of that anandamide now an anandamide comes from the word in the hindi word anand and anand stands for bliss and joy uh-huh. so you can understand where cannabis comes yeah. from the sense of joy and bliss and bliss and the history is because in the indian religion the vedas which is the religious scripture mm-hmm. gives cannabis plant one of the highest places to sort of reach that you know pinnacle of insight in, yeah. in that regard so that, that that was it at that time and this anandamide which is the body's own cannabis in the body, it binds very tightly with this CB1 receptor. And for people to understand this CB1 receptor, which is the cannabinoid one, when you're smoking marijuana, the THC part, which is the intoxicating part, binds to this receptor. Got it. So CB1 is a very important receptor for intoxicating part, as well as numerous other myriad interaction effects that it has. Mm-hmm. Then in 1993, they came up with the second receptor, which is for the CB2 receptor. They cloned it at that time. Uh, with this. And in 1995, they found the second endocannabinoid uh, at that point, which is another fancy name, 2-erectonyl glycerol. To, for uh, your purposes, I'll call it 2-A-G, G as in George. Okay. So first one is anandamide, second is 2-A-G. And then they sort of synthesized numerous cannabinoids, about 18 in all. But the story doesn't end there because there are 
myriad numerous other putative endocannabinoids that they, they can think of. The two that I gave you are the main ones, mm -hmm. but there are sort of all of these other ones that we really don't know what they exactly, where do they bind, how much effect do they have, but they, we know that they exist. In the body. These are things that exist in the body, right? In, in the body. They're mm -hmm. endocannabinoids. Yeah. Absolutely. So, for example, there's one called oleamide, which actually puts us to sleep. <laughs> it helps us sleep in that regard, you know, and then there are some other ones which have all, I mean, you can go down the list on uh, uh, this. So, and in top of it, let's make it a little bit more. Cannabinoid system doesn't just end at the cannabinoid receptor 1 and cannabinoid receptor 2. Okay. There are other receptors which people are still debating. How much of they are really part of the endocannabinoid real receptors versus they are just receptors to which endocannabinoids bind. Oh, sort interesting. Of are out there. Yeah. And, and I'll throw out some names. No need to get into the details. And the first one, the uh, abbreviation is TRPV1 stands for Transient Receptor Potential Vinyloid System 1. Okay, so th there we go. Uh -huh. That's one. Then there is Orphan G Protein Receptor. Then there is Proliferator Activated Receptor. So these are receptors through which there is indirect binding of the can cannabinoids take place. In indirect binding or many of these. So now let's sort of delve a little bit further into understanding the two endocannabinoids. Mm -hmm. What do they do and what are their effects overall? So if you think about where what they are doing, I can go down a list and we can just sort of understand why the cannabinoid system is so important. It's going to impact pain. Mm -hmm. It's had temperature regulation, your locomotion, your immune system, inflammation, neuroprotection, cell proliferation, embryo development. So if I think about the overall from the behavior perspective or from the cognitive perspective or thinking perspective, you can think about memory, pleasure, sense of time, sense yeah. of perception, cognition, thinking. Now, using those five words, if you are high on THC, now you can understand why your thinking can get impaired, your mm -hmm. memory can be you have more pleasure, your thinking maybe sort of your sense of time changes, yep. you may feel very slow, you, you, you get the idea. Yeah. So how the receptor occupancy will impact and depending upon and they are all over the brain, uh, especially in the limbic system. Limbic system is sort of the emotional mm -hmm. gut of the brain yep. to think of it in that way, because it deals with areas of memory, areas with fear, areas that deal with executive functioning, thinking memory. And when all of this is active, that limbic system goes into play. Mm -hmm. And the one of the most important, obviously, what we go back to and the use of cannabis has been is in pain pathways. Yeah. Because these receptors pick a big, a big play in modulating the pain. But we are talking about, I want to make very clear to people, chronic pain. I don't want people thinking about that there's an acute pain, something going on, and I need to take cannabis with that. No, yeah. there are there are other medicines and treatments that regulate that. Mm -hmm. We are really talking about chronic pain that we have. That is part one of it. Now it gets a little bit more interesting, which is the cannabinoid receptor 2. So far, I was really focusing on cannabinoid okay. receptor 1. Yeah. Because cannabinoid receptor 2 deals with the immune system. Okay. Immune system deals with practically, you know, to, in simple words to think of where are we thinking? We're thinking about infection and inflammation okay. in the body. Okay. So our spleen, our tonsils, B cells, T cells, the things that you have heard in the COVID a lot, actually. So what, what happens in the body is 
inflammation is a normal process in the body. Why is it helpful? Because when inflammation happens, it decreases the infection, it neutralizes toxins, it gets rid of irritants in the body, it removes dead cells. But on the flip side, here's the problem. In the process of getting rid of the junk, it can also start getting rid of healthy cells. Yeah. And that is where the autoimmune disorders come in, when the body turns on itself in some regard. Yep. And I don't know if you have heard that during the COVID, everyone was using the term cytokine storm. Yeah. You, yeah, right. Yeah. So basically what the cytokine storm is, the body is in a state of inflammation trying to get rid of this infection. But there is such a surge of inflammation that it starts to destroying your own self now. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So what does the CB2 receptors do? CB2 receptors, when they're activated, they decrease the cytokine storm and they decrease the inflammation. So there's a lot of interest to see how the cannabinoid receptor, in fact, may play a role in some ways in this COVID oh, illness or issue yeah. of decreasing the inflammation in the body in that regard. So there's a you know, lot of these startups and companies and biotechs and this, they've been looking at this as how they can play this out in this. So in a nutshell, you know, I would say that as simple as I can explain yeah. <laughs> the endocannabinoid system to you. Well, it, it, so we're we're discovering more on this. You know, we know that you know we have we have these receptors that will cause these different changes in, in our homeostatic systems in our body. Like when we look at the production of cannabis, or, or you know, influence these systems with the application of, of you know phytocannabinoids, right? Like we're we're taking yeah. this and in, in, mm -hmm. uh, in various forms. I mean, what do we know about? how how we can actually impact these systems in terms of you know dosing these things you know applying these things and obviously we've you know we're in this world of you know THC and CBD and THCV like we've all we've got all of these things kind of floating around now in terms of things we can put into products like what do we actually know about some of these things in terms of its effectiveness and dosing and and, and you know applying it it's okay so now let's go to the next step so far we have kept it very simple of uh -huh. understanding you know, the word cannabis. Let's delve deep into next next step of the cannabis yeah. because cannabis is sort of the more generic. Yeah. But then there are two parts to it. One is the sort of a, what we call as the hemp mm -hmm. and the other part is the marijuana yeah. part. Okay. So hemp is, you know, which is sort of the non-intoxicating CBD part. And then we have the THC part, which is the marijuana part mm -hmm. to think of it in that. And I can go a little bit behind also how cultivation of that and how can through some fancy agricultural, you can divert one versus the other. Uh -huh. You know, I, I can get into that. But th the story doesn't end there because there are overall, as we understand now, about four, five hundred different drugs within cannabis. Yeah. Think of it that way. Now, let's break it down further. There are approximately 140 phytocannabinoids. Okay. And we are only so far talking about cannabidiol, CBD, mm -hmm. and THC, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, the intoxicating part and yeah. the CBD part, okay? We are not even touched upon the other 138. <laughs> yeah, okay? And out of 138, we know a lot more about, about 120, and we still are in the dark about the other 20, yeah. okay? Then let's go next step. Then we have flavonoids yeah. uh, 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 that, that come in and terpenes and terpenoids. Mm -hmm. These are what gives uh, the plant kingdom sense of smell and sense of taste. Uh -huh. But they also have synergistic, synergistic and augmentating effects when they are mixed with the cannabinoids. 
So let me make an analogy so that probably if you don't understand, let me know. Let's say you and I are playing Scrabble. You have seven alphabets and I have seven alphabets. You make a you can make five words, I can make ten words for or vice versa, right? Yeah. With those seven alphabets and that's so in any particular order you can just change and you can just think. Uh-huh. Now imagine you have hundred and forty alphabets. Yeah. And think about how many combinations you can make. Okay, of that. Or the other way to think of it would be, you know, the musical instrument, the equalizer. Mm-hmm. You can just go up and down and you can completely change the sound quality of what you are listening to and hone in. Yeah. That is how you can think of the cannabis plant, which is as you can various cultivars as they can change, meaning that if the same cultivar, at but at different times, will have completely different product to give you, which means no two products are the same. Because at any given time, we're talking about THC, CBD, cannabigerol, cannabiocropine, cannabinol, oleamide, anything, (laughs) and they are in any particular ratio. And and that is where this concept of entourage effect comes in, you know, which is sort of debatable, but Ethan Russo, who's a uh, I would say uh, in, in this an authority on the entourage effect and on the science and work with GW Pharmaceuticals on coming up with wonderful products for seizure disorders uh, for this. Yeah. He claims that it is short-sighted to think of not believing in entourage effect because people say that all of these other cannabinoids do not act on cannabinoid receptors. And his point is, don't think of it that way. Because as I mentioned earlier, there are not just CB1 and CB2 receptors. Yeah. There are so many other receptors and you really don't need to be just interacting with these two receptors. You can have these general effects on so many other receptors to create that entourage effect. And that is why the science is evolving on so rapidly to understand. But the complication, Bruce Bear, is that at this point when we do research, yeah. we are bound to do double-blind clinical trials, which means in those trials, we have to have standardized products, right? Mm -hmm. So in a standardized product, right? So in a standardized product, you can only take the ratio of that. Now, that doesn't exist in nature. That exists when we synthesize those things. As I said to you, you have a very different what people are smoking versus what they are using, what's synthesized. So when there is comparing orange to apples in that regard to understand the science behind. Mm-hmm. Or uh, orange to fruit salad. <laughs> orange to fruit salad. I, I think that's a better analogy. I agree with you, actually. So that is one of the major hurdles yeah. I think that we are facing today. And I think at some point, I think the science will have to evolve or the standards will have to evolve if we have to understand how the cannabis plant kingdom can be understood to benefit and not just benefit, but to understand its limitations. Because I don't want people to think of and carry this entourage effect as only benefits. No. Entourage effect obviously carries risk factors Mm -hmm. that we can talk about. And we need to understand how different combinations can be detrimental and harmful also at the same time. And that is why it's so important because THC since 1975 has gone from literally a ratio of 4% to an average of 16 or 30% at this stage. And if you look at the dab, the shatter, the glass, the wax, which are concentrated forms of THC, it is 90% THC. Okay. And that has its own problems that, you know, and and so we are not doing studies on those things. We are doing on very standardized products to do these studies. And that that's the problem. Yeah. It's like listening to music that's only like screaming league 
guitar. What a great way to explain it. I love that. I'm going to use that again, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Because right. it, it just, it seems like we're in a little bit of this conundrum where, you know, from a research point of view, we have this, this horribly complicated, you know, dynamically complicated, you know, permutations, combinations of the different molecules we can be studying. And yes, we can, we can isolate them and we can try to study them individually. But the fact is, is people are using them you know, in combination. So, you know, it's like we could, we could learn certain things about molecules, but is it how applicable is it in terms of practice and prescribing? And then, you know, and then that, you know, understanding, well, what, what are the really the effects or what are the, the applications? But I guess what's your, what's your sense right now in terms of where do we have some reasonably good understanding that cannabis in various forms can be helpful, can be applied to various kind of medical conditions, medical situations? And where where do we kind of suspect, but we really don't know for sure? Like, what's what's your take as a, as a you know, on the medical side? Well, you know, if you look at, for example, the indications, they're very state to state. But if you look at, for example, just the three products that are out there and FDA approved, mm-hmm. which I think is the way to understand where what we can really is that applicable Mm -hmm. in some ways is, for example, the dronabinol, which is the marinol, which is the synthetic THC. Mm -hmm. Then there is the nabilone that that we use. And and then we have epidiolex, which is the CBD, which is for seizures. So if you look at the dronabinol, it's practically used in cachexia, wasting diseases associated with HIV or AIDS. It's used for uh, chemotherapy-induced nausea for people. And then Nabilone has more or less the same. And then the Epidiolex, which is used for seizure disorders for patients. And the seizures that we are really talking about are treatment-resistance seizures yeah. many times which are used in Dravet syndrome or tuberous sclerosis that we have used that was recently actually approved. Mm-hmm. So having said that, it's also used in chronic pain mm-hmm. uh, for that. Now, if you go beyond that, it's used in PTSD, it's used in, you know, multiple sclerosis, spasticity, mm-hmm. is used in ALS, it is used in fibromyalgia, and it depends because you can go on and on in terms of different states coming up with different things. But if you go really by the way they are approved, they're sort of a very limited scope. And that again goes to because FDA can only approve based on those gold standard studies. However, as clinicians, you you know, you can recommend the uses. And it's very important for people to understand that it may be semantics, but clinicians are not allowed to prescribe. Yeah. They can only say recommendation of cannabis. And when they go to the pharmacy, you know, there will be in some states, including New York, you are required to have a pharmacist, while in other places, they may have a butt tender who, who uses that. And, and they will then accordingly give you, and every state has different, for example, how, uh, some states will require that you only take sort of in a distillate form yeah. or a tablet form. You're not allowed flower like in New York state to smoke or anything. Mm-hmm. Other states would allow a certain growth you know, you can grow your own plant or you will have a little bit that you can uh, carry with you uh-huh. or dispense. It So the, in terms of where the science is, we have a lot more to learn, I have to say. Yeah. I, I don't want people walking away with the understanding that all of the states that have, these are all FDA approved. No, they're yeah. not. Yeah. These are being sort of suggested that these are the uses that clinicians can use them for at this time. And and that the reason for that is, most of this data today is preclinical, okay? Yeah. And we are limited by that because we don't have enough clinical studies, gold, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. Why, what is the reason for that? It's a vicious cycle of what I call a completely illogical, <laughs> you know, circle. circle. Yeah. And that's based on the fact that cannabis is a Schedule One substance. 
Schedule 1 substance means you has no medical utility and high risk of addiction. And when you have that, you have a very difficult time getting an approval through agencies to do any kind of research. Yeah. So if you can't do research on it, you won't have clinical data. And if you don't have clinical data on things, you cannot use or prescribe. And so when you go to do anything, you'll say, well, there is no data. How can you do this? Well, you don't have data, but you can't do research on it. Well, you can't do research because you're <laughs> substance one. You are just chasing your tail. Yeah, exactly. And I, it, it makes me crazy to think of it. So I think to move on to the point of what you are saying, how can we better serve is I think descheduling or rescheduling in some ways. And and here's where it becomes more illogical. I was talking about dronabilol and nabilone, mm-hmm. which are synthetic, basically THC. Yeah. Interestingly, they are literally like THC, okay? Just that they're being manufactured. Mm-hmm. They're not in plant kingdom. So dronabinol is a schedule three and nabilone is schedule two. So you make THC and you give them schedule Jeez. two and three, but when you have an exist in nature, you do you have it schedule one. You know, so <laughs> uh, there's a lot, there's a whole thread on there that I'm not going to get into, but I can, I, I but, but you can see, you can sort of see the conundrum we're in. It's just as an industry. Yes, that that yeah. goes back to the 1970s yeah. Nixon draconian laws and era, and how that was those things came into existence, yeah. and it has kept with us, and we are so far behind Israel and other yeah. countries yeah. in terms of where we should be in understanding benefits and risks, because as I'm talking about this. People need to understand all of the risks associated as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, what research have you seen recently or that you know that's underway that's most interesting for you in terms of really understanding more about the system and the plant? You know, the most fascinating area that's right now coming is the role of uh, exogenous phyto and endocannabinoids in treatment of depression and anxiety. Mm. Because it's a it's a two-edged sword. On one end, there will be studies that you will see. There's one out of New Zealand and Australia on adolescents from age 14 to 21 to show that people who were smoking early in years, not only during that time, but even later in life, they had a very high risk of depression. So in some ways, the cannabinoids were causing these people and playing a role mm-hmm. in causing depressive symptoms. Having said that, it is fascinating how they have looked at all kinds of cannabinoid agonists. That agonist means things that activate the receptor. Mm-hmm. And antagonist means uh, transmitters or products that block the receptor. Okay. okay? So, and, and it becomes a lot complicated when you're looking at CB1 and CB2 receptors. But at the end of the day, you know, I can just say, tell you this much, that a lot of data shows very interesting and promising future in terms of the role of these cannabinoids in treatment uh, of uh, anxiety and depression with these kinds of things. And they have looked at comparing them to conventional antidepressants, tricyclics, SSRIs for that matter. And we see a huge population which is treatment resistant. And the most fascinating area that we are seeing now is that the cannabinoid receptor 1 in fact, has a polymorphism, which means there are genetic variation. And people who have that genetic variation allele in cannabinoid receptor are more treatment resistant to depression treatment, in fact. And number two, are more likely to have depression. And then that is in people who are at high risk for anxiety. And it becomes even interesting that they have seen that it is mostly in females. And that actually would go with 
the common sense that females have twice the risk of depression compared to males yeah. in, in that regard. So for me personally, I would love to see a lot more scientific work being done today and moving forward on the role of endo and uh, exogenous cannabinoids in the role of treatment for anxiety and depression. Because I think if you look at these two conditions, majority of the world, you know, the 20% of the world at one point or another will suffer from depression and 13 to 15% with anxiety. Huge numbers yeah. that if you think about it yeah. uh, overall. And if we can come up with different kinds of products that will modulate these receptors or even use brain body's own yeah. endocannabinoids by targeting those receptors with something that can make the body's own endocannabinoids in some ways yeah. uh, tr treat that depression and anxiety would just be a fascinating thing for me. Well, it's one of the things I love about the cannabis industry is there's just so much to learn and discover. It's like every every week there's something new and some new research being done. So it's, it's what makes it so fun. Dr. Mann, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. If people want to find out more about you, about the book, what's the best way to get that information? One is they can find my website, which is samoonmd.com. That's the website. And if they want to look at the book, it is cannabistextbook.com, where they will find information on the book, as well as all recent data, whether it's clinical, whether it's legal, legislator, everything will be over there, as well as a link to the book as well over there. And if anyone has any questions and they want to reach me, they can reach me on my email. And my email is my first name, period, last name, at NYU. MC, which stands for New York University Medical Center, nyumc.org. So yeah. first name, period, last name, at nyumc.org. I'll make sure that all the information is in show notes so people can click through, get that. Dr. Mott, it's been great. Great conversation. I've, I've learned a lot, <laughs> which is tough. I think I know a lot about cannabis, but this, is, uh, this has been a, a heavy dose of new knowledge. So I really appreciate the time today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Bruce. Really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.